Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the January 2021 edition of Socialism for All. This is an audiobook and discussion of Anuradha Gandhi's Fascism, Fundamentalism, and Patriarchy. It was written by Gandhi in 2001 on the verge of Narendra Modi becoming the chief minister of Gujarat. The first publication online was at redspark.nu, April 12, 2017. This edition is from Marxists.org, December 2019. And as usual, thanks to Marxists.org, the Marxist Internet Archive, for offering this file and thousands of others of Marxist texts for free. Now, let's get into the audiobook. Exactly one year after the carnage in Gujarat began, the country is still reeling from the horror of the events. Narendra Modi's expected victory in the assembly elections has further strengthened the position of the Hindutva fascist forces, not only in Gujarat, but also in the country as a whole. Reviewing the strategy of Hindutva forces and the lessons from Gujarat become even more relevant now. Here we are concerned with the impact of the Hindutva fascist forces on women and on the women's movement. The agenda of the Hindu fascist forces is political. Their strategy is the maximum political mobilization of the Hindu masses, and their aim is the establishment of a Hindu rashtra. It will be noticed that the present phase of Hindu fascist growth can trace its growth with the neoliberal economic policies of the early 1980s. And the aggressive policies of economic reforms and globalization of the 1990s is accompanied with the aggressive policies of Hindutva. The reasons for this is not far to seek. The policies of economic reform have led to the extreme impoverization of not only a large section of the masses, but even of sizable sections of the middle classes, so there was urgent need to divert people's attention from their mass destitution through the whipping up a frenzy against Muslims and other minorities. Besides, mass anger against the blatant capitulation to the imperialists, particularly the U.S., is sought to be diverted through fake nationalism, like slogans of cultural nationalism and Hindu Rashtra. The extreme and continued polarization of Hindu society in Gujarat along religious lines, the sense of brazen confidence with which the attacking, looting, and killing was carried out, and the active participation of a section of the women from the upper castes, shows that the Hindu fascist forces have been successful in Gujarat in taking their agenda forward. They have penetrated and succeeded in converting a section of the Hindu masses to their ideology and imbue them with the goal of Hindu Rashtra. What horror this pretends for the oppressed sections, the lower castes, women, especially women of minority communities and the poor, does not need mention. Growing Fundamentalism Worldwide, What It Means for Women the rise of Hindu fascist forces is part of the worldwide rise of fundamentalism and fascism. Imperialism faced with its worst ever crisis since the interwar years is encouraging and promoting fundamentalist forces and fascist organizations and propaganda. Quote, imperialism strives for reaction everywhere, says Lenin. As Hawley has agreed, quote, fundamentalist perspectives on gender cast a uniquely revealing light on the nature of fundamentalism as a whole. 
As it is, all religions have been patriarchal in the moral code they sanction and the social arrangements they uphold. And one of the central points of fundamentalist propaganda is a conservative ideology of gender. All fundamentalist forces, be they of the Christian denominations in the U.S. or Hindu, or the new religions in Japan or Islamic forces, they proclaim the specific agenda of restoring the centrality of the family and home in the life of women and patriarchal control over her sexuality. Hence, ideologues of the new right, even in the U.S., are claiming that there is a moral crisis in American society, and this is because of the fact that women are working outside the home. Though they have mobilized actively around opposition to abortion rights for women, they begin by arguing that welfare state expenditures have raised taxes and added to inflation, pulling the married woman into the labor force and thereby destroying the fabric of the patriarchal family and hence the moral order of society. According to Jerry Falwell of The Moral Majority, quote, children in the U.S., should have the right to the love of the mother and a father who understands their different roles and fulfill their different responsibilities. To live in an economic system that makes it possible for husbands to support their wives as full-time mothers in the home and enable the families to survive on one income instead of two, unquote. Giving specious moral arguments, these fascists in the U.S. are aggressively presenting the so-called pro-life campaign. This campaign started with reactions to court judgments, but it has gone beyond that and has included attacks on abortion clinics, killing of activists and doctors who help women get abortions done. At the same time, these very so-called pro-life forces are among the active campaigners for the continuation of the death penalty and larger military spending and aggressive international policy by the U.S. government. Hence, they are among the most conservative and reactionary sections of U.S. society. They have white supremacist views, indulge in openly racist activity, and are fascist in their nature of organizing and propaganda. The same is to be found in the conservative new religions that have sprung up in Japan, especially in the post-war period. A study in the early 90s says that, quote, in the post-war period, many new religions have adopted an agenda of social issues on which reestablishing a patriarchal ideology of the family heads the list. The pre-war family system that they seek to reinstate institutionalizes male dominance and the authority of elders and keeps women's status low by restricting their sphere of choice in matters of marriage, reproduction, and divorce. The older family form is imbued with religious significance in such a way that to be a good wife and mother is not only proper, it is essential to women's salvation, unquote. Both in the U.S. and Japan, these movements have arisen in the context of a rapid change in women's role and transformation in the family structures. Women have been going out in large numbers working outside the home and earning an independent income. Islamic fundamentalism is a more complex phenomenon. Initially, in the post-Second World War period, it was propped up and sustained by U.S. imperialism in the face of democratic and socialist movements of people, like in the Arab countries. But with the restoration of capitalism in the Soviet Union, and especially China, and the betrayal of the democratic national liberation movements by their compromising leadership, Anti-imperialism has been expressed in traditional and often religious ways. 
Islam has also become an ideological force adopted by movements against the U.S. imperialists like in Iran or become the expression of resistance as in Palestine today due to the betrayal of the older, more secular, and, quote, left leadership. In the countries of the former Soviet Union, too, Islamic fundamentalism has become the means through which nationalist opposition to Russian domination and exploitation is being expressed. In countries like Afghanistan, where there was no anti-feudal democratic mass movement, modernization, and where increase in freedom to women was initiated from above during Soviet occupation, it could gain no support from the rural masses and thus Islamic fundamentalism maintained its social base. Hence the warlords who came to power in Afghanistan after the Soviet withdrawal in 1992 were as reactionary as the Taliban that swept to power several years later, and Rawa, the women's organization that opposed the restrictions on women's rights, was as critical of the warlords as of the Taliban. Today, the same warlords are back in power under U.S. protection. But whether they are reactionary regimes like the Saudi monarchy or the more mass movement-based organizations, they have been making control over women's dress, her movements, and manner of her participation in public life an important part of their campaign. And this is what has gained the maximum publicity in the bourgeois and imperialist media, given the campaign being launched by American imperialism against Islam. Given the complex role of fundamentalism in the world today, the political role it plays will determine the manner in which we struggle against it. Religious fundamentalism of all types promotes patriarchy and other backward values, and must therefore be generally countered by all democratic and revolutionary forces. Yet today, fundamentalism has a dual role. First, fundamentalism of the Christians in the U.S., the Hindutva Brigade of India, etc., is part of the growing fascist policies of the state and ruling classes, and has to be seen and attacked in that context. On the other hand, Muslim fundamentalism today is growing in reaction to the U.S.'s aggressive warmongering, and in reaction to the Hindu fascist offensive in the country, and so plays a different political role vis-a-vis -vis the state. So, with respect to the former, it is necessary to attack it thoroughly on all fronts. While regarding the latter, there is need to see its anti-U.S. and anti-Hindutva role, while at the same time exposing its retrograde patriarchal and feudal thinking. The Indian Context In the Indian context, it is clear that, at present, the foremost enemy of women are the Hindutva forces. Hindutva breeds on the festering, stagnant pool of feudal values that continue to thrive in this backward, semi-feudal, semi-colonial system. The casteist, patriarchal, and other feudal values already prevalent in this system acts as dry hay for the Hindu fascist fire, and the upper caste elite form natural allies for these venomous political vampires. Besides, due to the general backward thinking and a weak democratic movement, other castes and classes also tend to fall prey to the aggressive and wide-scale propaganda of the Hindutva forces. During Rup Konwar's Sati immolation in 1987, which some commentators consider as a dress rehearsal for the demolition of the Babri Masjid, the Hindutva forces publicly revealed their patriarchal biases and attitudes. The event took place in a well-off village, Deorala, about 50 kilometers from Jaipur in Rajasthan, but it snowballed into an all-India issue 
with the various organizations of the Hindutva forces coming out stridently in support of the practice of sati. While the progressive women's organizations organized a morcha in opposition to the sati and demanding the arrest of the culprits, supporters, mostly Rajputs, led by the Hindutva Brigade, took out a militant morcha of almost 30,000 in the state capital. The BJP leader, Vijayaraj Sindhya, came out openly in support of sati as, quote, our cultural heritage, and argued that it is the fundamental right of a Hindu widow if she so desires. In their argument, if a widow voluntarily decides to immolate herself on her husband's funeral pyre, then there is no reason to oppose it. The woman is seen only in relation to her husband, her independent existence does not count. By attaining sat, inner truth, a woman decides to immolate herself with her husband, and she thus acquires a power that will protect her husband in his journey beyond. Thus the sati, the one who acquires this power, is the model of devotion to her husband, the true pativarata, whose bond with her husband cannot be broken even with death, and she carries on to protect him after death. The conservative trading families from Rajasthan have funded and built innumerable sati temples in Rajasthan and elsewhere promoting this backward patriarchal ideology. Though their support for sati now is no longer so crude, they still uphold and glorify religious customs, which uphold the same ideology and role for women. The Hindutva forces have picked up the demand for a uniform civil code and thereby communalized yet another issue of women's rights. These very forces had opposed the reforms in the Hindu customary law pertaining to women's rights in property and marriage in the 1950s. But, in the 1990s, they have demanded the introduction of the Uniform Civil Code so that Muslims can no longer be governed by their personal law. Their demand has nothing to do with the rights of women, whether Hindu or Muslim. It is only one more stick with which to beat the Muslim community. Their anti-human, patriarchal attitude came forth in Gujarat in its crudest and most violent forms, with the gang rapes and molestation of women in various districts, and the vulgar propaganda on rape distributed widely in various places. All fact-finding teams have recorded testimonies of women who were either victims of rapes or witnesses to the rape of friends and relatives. And this must be understood in the context of the full significance of how this fascist mentality looks at women. When backward ideology sanctions and advocates the total subordination of women to men, then women become the symbols and carriers of social honor of the community, often even of the embodiments and the sovereignty of the state. Women for them are the representatives of the community and the transmitters and repositories of the culture, of the community and its values. They are the means through which the community is reproduced and continued. They are using women to pursue their political ends, both when they are mobilizing them and when they are sexually attacking minority women. It is important to remember that these Hindutva forces, whether they be of the Sang Parivar, the RSS, the Bajrang Dal, the BJP, or whether they are within other political formations like the Congress, they share the same reactionary attitude to women. Even in most cases, rape is an affirmation that the woman is an object of pleasure and an assertion that of the power of man over her. But when rapes take place in the political context, as in Gujarat, as part of collective attacks, 
The act is organized aggression. It becomes a spectacular ritual, a ritual of victory, the defilement of the autonomous symbol of honor of the enemy community. This has been stated earlier, but needs to be emphasized, especially when we see that the vulgar propaganda leaflets issued by the Song Parivar were explicitly sexual. There is nothing sexual about gang rapes or rapes of individual women in riots and such attacks, whether by communal forces or by police and other forces. These rapes are political acts meant to humiliate the, quote, enemy. Dishonoring the woman is dishonor of the community, a challenge and insult to the men of the community who could do nothing to, quote, protect the honor of the women, i.e. the community. In this whole play of power, the woman, her rights as a human being, do not count at all. Gujarat has once again proved that the Hindu fascist forces will stop at nothing, to achieve their total domination over the religious minorities, especially over the Muslims. Justification for these rapes are to be found in the writings of the ideologues of Hindutva, in fact, in the most sophisticated among them, in Savarkar's writings themselves. Savarkar, in his interpretation of history, portrayed the Muslim as lustful, sensuous, while the Hindu is impotent comparatively. The Muslim, driven by religious duty, abducted, raped, and forcibly converted millions of Hindu women, while Hindu men had a, quote, perverted sense of chivalry that prevented them from doing anything to the enemy's womenfolk. He called it a law of nature, obeyed even by the animal world, that in a war, the men of the conquered tribe are killed while the women are distributed by the victors amongst themselves. Savarkar wrote this in 1963 in his Marathi treatise, Six Glorious Epics of Indian History, translated into English in 1971. But later, after the 1965 war with Pakistan, he repeated this idea even more strongly when he criticized Shivaji and Chinaji Appa for not doing to Muslim women what they had done to Hindu women. Only a tit-for-tat policy would teach them, he asserted. From 1938 itself, in fact, Savarkar repeatedly addresses the theme of the violation of Hindu women at the hands of Muslims and the need to give up nonviolence. So we should be very clear that the fascist outlook is even historically and morally justifying rapes and the killing of fetuses and newborn babes, a moral justification to conduct ethnic cleansing. As the Hindu fascists promote the worst forms of Brahminical orthodoxy, their patriarchal approach, though it has taken the most degrading form against the minorities, particularly the Muslims and Christians, it is also manifest against women folk in general, in the promotion of dowry, sati, etc., and the confining of the woman to the house, as a chattel for housework and production of children. Beside, the aggressive Hindutva offensive against Muslims have retarded the movement amongst Muslim women for reforms in their personal law, as the entire community is being pushed back into the arms of their mullahs, where defense of their right to their faith has become the main issue before them. The increase in the use of the burqa is an example of such retrogression. The State's Patriarchal Communal Outlook if the fascist forces in India have revealed their patriarchal outlook in crude and violent forms, the Indian state, too, shares the same communal and patriarchal approach. All its pretensions of being secular and democratic stand exposed when we examine the way in which it works. For, as a Times of India editorial, 
was forced to point out in the context of the forcible deportation of Bangladeshis going on at present, if they are Hindus, they are considered refugees, and if they are Muslims, they are considered infiltrators. But this is not all. The Indian state revealed its communal patriarchal bias during the formation of India itself in 1947 in the manner in which the issue of women abducted during the turmoil and riots during partition was handled. In eight years from 1947 onwards, 30,000 women were, quote, recovered from both countries. The total number of Muslim women, quote, recovered from India was 20,728. The rescue of the abducted women was seen as a question of national honor and a moral obligation. The women were victims. They were the symbols of the community honor. Muslim women were to be restored to the Muslim nation and Hindu women to the, quote, Hindu nation. After forced abduction, there was forced return. Hence, even the ordinance that was enacted in India was concerned only with Muslim women residing in other houses and not with all women and the government even passed another law that women brought back from Pakistan should leave their children behind, considering they were fathered by a Muslim. Those who were pregnant were made to undergo abortions. In fact, in the entire process, the wishes of the women were never considered, and they were denied all legal rights to decide whether they wanted to leave the family they were living with and whether they wanted to return or not. In fact, the policy of the state was clear. The women were to be returned whether they wished to or not. The Indian state had revealed its Hindu bias from the time of partition itself, and women were the victims of this policy. The judiciary, too, has in the decades of the 1980s been very much influenced by the Hindutva ideology. Since senior judges come from the same classes that are supporters of the Hindu fascist forces, it is not surprising that their bias is showing. The judgment by Justice Y.V. Chandrachud of the Supreme Court in the Shabano case is an example of this. The judgment waxed eloquently about Muslims and Muslim personal law and the privilege enjoyed by Muslim men. The judgment talked about the divided loyalties of Muslims and the need to immediately introduce a uniform civil code. The judgment had very little to say on the rights of women. In such a case, it was essentially an anti-Muslim judgment which inflamed the anger of Muslims, leading to the mobilization by conservative Muslim leaders against the rights of Muslim women to maintenance after divorce. Women's Organization of the Hindutva Forces The RSS started the Rastra Savika Samiti in 1936 itself as an adjunct of the RSS, which admitted only male members. It was patterned like the RSS with small locality-based shakas and a pramukh sanchalika, which is a non-elective post. Office bearers are selected by senior members. The shakas were centers for intense ideological training for the women without having to leave their locality and their caste class environment. They were taught the RSS version of Indian history, about culture and tradition, and were given physical training. But the Rashtra Savika Samiti was restricted in its class and caste base. It is only after the progressive women's movement emerged in the late 1970s that the pro-Hindu parties set up women's organizations. The BJP set up its Mahila Morcha in 1980. The Shiv Sena set up the Mahila Agadi in 1985, while the VHP set up the Durga Vihini later. All of them were geared toward mobilizing the mass of women 
for the cause of Hindutva. Women's Wing of RSS, where wife-beating is justified while she can't get divorced. The shakas of the Rashtra Savikas are concentrated in the states where the RSS has been traditionally strong, Maharashtra, Karnataka, and AP. It has been restricted to the same caste and class circles that the RSS has had its base, the Brahmin and trading communities. The women are encouraged to build up contacts in their neighborhood, become counselors, encourage the celebration of Hindu festivals promoted by the Samiti, and informally spread the ideas received in the shakas. This is their main aim, spreading their ideas after building up friendship and trust. In this way, the Samiti has spread its tentacles among the conservative middle classes. It has also been associated with children's education, Shishu Vihars, Saraswati Vidyalayas. The ideology of the Rastra Savika Samiti emphasizes the pivotal role of the woman in the family, her role in transmitting the samskaras to the other family members, especially children. They emphasize the virtue of deference to elders and family and disapprove of acting in opposition to family wishes. A large number of women BJP MPs were members of the Samiti. They believe in the strong Hindu woman and hence the focus on physical training. They propagate that women bear children to serve the motherland. The attitude is that women are being trained for combat in the war against the Muslim enemy. They have successfully combined her traditional role in the family with her, quote, patriotic duty, blended Desh Bhakti with Ram Bhakti. Service to the nation and liberation of the Ramjan Mabumi are one and the same for the women indoctrinated by them. The Rath Yatra in 1990 can be considered as a turning point as far as public mobilization of women by the Hindutva forces. Women came to be mobilized on a wide scale from the Ramjabumi campaign. Since then, women's active participation in riots, in looting, and in attacks on the minority community has become noticeable. They were active in the riots in Mumbai and Surat immediately after the demolition of the Babri Masjid. The BJP, Shiv Sena, VHP have attracted a much wider base than the Samiti. They have spread their base in specific areas and localities by organizing the celebration of traditional Hindu customs and festivals, like Haldi Kumkum, Viluko Puja, Ganapati, by helping them take up locality-based issues, encouraging schemes for income generation for women, and above all, by encouraging women to come out actively for political causes that their organization supports. This could be the arrest of a leader, Maha Arthi, or the Temple Campaign. Through this participation, women have gained a sense of importance and a feeling of participation in public life hitherto denied to them. Though these organizations have taken up issues like dowry death, rape, and resolved some family dispute or the other, this is done basically on the strength of the party. They do not advocate gender justice and are opposed to any moves that disturb the patriarchal structure of the family and the political party. Ideological indoctrination, whether through TV serials like Ramayana or through Shabir's training camps, uphold patriarchal authoritarian values, especially with reference to the family. They have been indoctrinated to believe that the progressive women's movement in India is an implant from the West which has no relevance in India. Quote, women in India ever had a pride of place within the household and the society. 
This only has to be reestablished and reaffirmed, unquote. Yet the various leaders of the Hindutva parties do not speak with one voice. While some, like Vijayaraje Skindia, have taken an openly conservative position, and VHP leaders like Bamdev and Sants like Swami Muktanan Saraswati have demanded that the right to polygamy be restored to Hindu men, after all, why should only Muslim men have this privilege? Other leaders take a more moderate stance. For example, they uphold women's right to employment. Only then can they be strong. The position they take also depends upon the political situation and the needs of the hour. Basically, they portray women as matri shakti, motherhood being pivotal in their characterization of women and her power. Women are mothers and wives, and they must be honored and protected. For them, the Hindu woman today is not a victim, but a power that has to be channelized for the service of the community. Essentially, they are indoctrinating women to hate Muslims as enemies, uphold patriarchal values. They believe that there are natural and essential differences between men, women and men, and ignore gender injustices that exist in Hindu laws and customs, but view the injustice that Muslim women are subject to in an exaggerated manner. Note their excessive concern about restrictions like burqa on Muslim women and justify the rapes and molestations of women from Muslim and other minority communities. As a whole, they are being indoctrinated to accept a fascist agenda which will be extremely harmful to the rights of women. Women's autonomy and independence will be crushed and they will have to serve the state and the community as was done during Nazi rule in Germany. Women's struggle for equality has been glossed over by them, and the struggle will be crushed ruthlessly if the Hindutva forces succeed in their fascist aims. Women Arise, Fight Hindu Fascism For revolutionary and democratic forces, for the progressive women's movement, the tasks are clearly laid out. To fight the rise of the Hindutva fascist forces in India, it is not sufficient to fight it only in the political realm, but to fight it on all fronts. The impact of these forces on women, and their strategy for women, has also to be countered. It is necessary to expose the notion that their mobilization of women means the real empowerment of women. We have to bring to light that in spite of their rhetoric of the strong woman and Shakti, in spite of their projection of aggressive women leaders like Uma Bharati and Sadavis like Ritambara, their basic conception of women's role is patriarchal. We have to expose that their very activation of women is based on distorted and totally false history and a systematic whipping up of hatred for a besieged minority community. The paramilitary training being given to women by the Durga Vahinis and Savika Samitis is not for self-protection or for the liberation of the masses from oppression and exploitation, but to attack the Muslim and other communities. We need also to expose the fact that they have the support of the rightist forces in the U.S. and elsewhere, since they share not only common economic interests, but also a common vision of society and women's place in society. And we need to expose that these forces have gained support because Indian society has not been through a democratic revolution which would have swept away the feudal relations and culture, not only as far as the economic aspects are concerned, but also in social life. Hence, this struggle encompasses the economic, political, and social spheres. It must include propaganda, 
education among the mass of women and cannot be restricted only to middle-class women. Hence, in the present context today, an important aspect in the struggle against patriarchy is mobilizing the vast masses of women, not merely against fundamentalism in general, but more particularly against the Hindu fascist forces. And that's the end of the audiobook. There are a few acknowledgments. Fundamentalism and Gender by John Stratton Hawley, Women and the Hindu Right by Tanika Sarkar and Urvashi Butalia, Religion at the Service of Nationalism and Other Essays by Madhu Kishwar, and EPW, Recovery, Rupture, Resistance, Indian State and Abduction of Women During Partition by Ritu Menon, Kamla Basin. So with the acknowledgments out of the way, I'd like to go over some notes and names of people and organizations that may be unfamiliar. So first of all, Anuradha Gandhi herself, I'm just going to read the Marxist.org bio, uh, lived from 1954 to 2008. She was born Anuradha Shanbhag. She was the daughter of a pair of communists, Ganesh and Kamud Shanbhag, who were married in the offices of the Undivided Communist Party of India in Mumbai. And Anuradha herself was born in Mumbai on 28 March 1954. Her interests in politics received a boost while attending Elphinstone College in Mumbai, which was considered a hub of left-wing activists. She joined the university-based Progressive Youth Movement and through it became acquainted with the Naxalite movement of the day. In 1969, she took part in founding the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist. She was an instrumental part of the Dalit Panthers movement in 1974. She was also instrumental in the campaign to defend democratic rights during the emergency. Her work with trade unions, women's, and Dalit organizations in Vidarbha led her to leave Mumbai for Nagpur in 1982. In 1983, she married Kobad Gandhi, a PCL-ML militant from a Gujarat Parsi family, who himself held leadership posts in the party until his capture and imprisonment in 2009. In the 1990s, despite having been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, Anurada moved to Bastar and lived clandestinely in the Danda Karanya forest with the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist People's War Group, Guerrilla Army for three years. In that period, she worked to strengthen the party's work among women and to expand the Krantakari Adivasi Mahila Sangatan, or KAMS. In the 2000s, she directed the party's work among women and was part of the Vidarbha Regional Committee and of the Maharashtra State Committee. At the Unity Congress in 2007, she was elected to the Central Committee of the newly founded Communist Party of India Maoist. At the time, she was the only woman in such a position. She died on 12 April 2008 from complications related to malaria contracted during her days in the forests of Jharkhand. So that is the author of this piece, and we'll be hearing more from her on the channel. So one of the first names that was mentioned in here is Narendra Modi. Modi is, he's well actually currently the Prime Minister of India. Uh, this was at the time when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat. That was from 2001 to 2014. So that was the beginning of the time when this article was written. He became political in the 1970s when he joined the RSS, which is a right-wing Hindu nationalist uh, group. It's the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. And it was through his affiliation with this group that he got placed into the BJP 
1985, he held a number of offices within the party until he became general secretary in 2001. Again, that was the time of this article. Um, so the BJP and the RSS are names that you see a lot within Hindu nationalist literature. Uh, so the topic of this article, Hindutva, uh, it's the prom- predominant form of Hindu nationalism in India. It was first coined in 1892 and later popularized by Savarkar, uh, who she mentioned in the article. That would be Vinayak Damodar Savarkar. It's an intensely conservative movement, Hindutva. It, people split hairs over whether it's fascist or not, but, you know, fascism is a coalition. Uh, you get, I mean, there's always, it's far-right extremism, but there's always like a spectrum within a fascist coalition. It's never like just one group. You get, you know, different people attracted to it for slightly different reasons. We'll just call it fascist. So these are the people who rule India right now. They have an ugly history, uh, I mean, as documented in this article over the past few decades of, you know, undermining any kind of uh, feminist liberation, certainly, and just, you know, workers liberation more generally. You know, we saw earlier this year uh, massive general strikes across India involving some 250 million workers, many of whom are organized under a socialist or communist banner. We love to see that. Uh, This is the first article, I believe, that I have done related to India. Um, If this is something you're familiar with out there in the audience, please do leave a comment and suggest uh, further resources. I have a few things that I have pulled um, and I'm planning to put up on the channel. But um, it seems to me like if India went communist, this would be basically just the beginning of the end for capitalism because between China and India, then you have, uh, you know, Uh, like a third of the world population would be, you know, would have broken away uh, from, you know, global capitalism and just would be getting out of that system. I think the movement would be unstoppable at that point. That said, I have seen in comments on some things, uh, I think it was on Twitter, actually, uh, some extremely racist uh, things being said by Indians or by Indian looking accounts uh, you know, supposedly Indian, you, you can never really tell who's a bot on Twitter, uh, but saying, you know, extremely racist things about Chinese people. So, you know, uh, that's certainly a factor, particularly if there's a big right wing push in India. Uh, they always try to use racism to divide people. Capitalists do. But um, this is a topic of huge interest here at Socialism for All. So, again, if you know of resources uh, or just, you know, names to look up, uh, do leave them in the comments. That's all helpful. I'm going to leave it here. Thanks for listening. And here come the credits. And that's the video. Thanks to our current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen or just support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash socialism for all and sign up for a monthly donation. You can also follow us at facebook.com slash socialism. The number for all used to have a page at for all and it got throttled to death by zuck here on youtube please click the like button subscribe button and the notifications bell please leave a comment if you can and please share our video wherever you're online your twitter feed your discord servers reddit subs etc all of that helps more people to see this content whether it's in the youtube algorithm or just posting it on other sites all of that's helpful all of you out there supporting and promoting this content 
makes it all go that much more smoothly. We need to end capitalism, normalize talking about socialism today, and uh, it's really kind of our only hope for a better tomorrow. Thanks for all you do, and we will catch you in the next video.